Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning of being here together with your church. Thank you for, uh, thank you for the many blessings that you've given us this week. Thank you for your kindness, your provision toward us. Thank you for your mercy and your protection of us. Thank you for the joy that we have in Christ and for uh, what that does for us in being able to navigate through and be uh, protected against all of the discouragements or the difficulties that may come uh, by virtue of living in a fallen world where we may be uh, attacked by others, mocked by others, or go through various hardships that are even just part of the human fallen condition. Uh, Whatever it is that might come up that's so difficult, we confess we often take for granted what your salvation has done to change the way that we see these things. And we want to acknowledge that you've been so gracious and kind to us as to give us salvation and to give us hope and confidence and a steadiness and sobriety in the midst of a world that often is in despair and is worried and fearful. And we pray that you might help us all the more to rely upon your word to bring us the foundation of the truth that we would understand and would help us to navigate through these things. Father, thank you for sending your son into the world. Thank you for sending your word so that we can understand him and we can know what he has done. And thank you for your great love and your grace toward us that's displayed not only in sending him into the world, but also in drawing us to yourself through him. We pray that you might help us understand your word this morning, that we would have greater confidence in it through not only simply learning from it, but learning about it specifically in this text. We pray that you'd help us to be faithful, to adhere to it, and to use it to serve, uh, to serve you and to serve others in gospel ministry in the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are back in 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. Uh, we are doing a little part 2 of verses 14 through 17. I want to read starting in verse 10 so that we understand uh, why Paul is telling Timothy these things. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 through 17. Um, then we will... Review verses 14 through 17, the content there, and then focus on the last two verses, uh, specifically on the nature of inspired scripture and what that is and what that means. So 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 10, Paul tells Timothy, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured... And out of them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. As we resume what we were looking at last week, just to briefly review uh, what we covered, we were looking at the features of the Word of God that Paul lays out in this text uh, that show why Timothy should continue to hold fast to it and why he should teach it to other people. Why should Timothy, in the midst of people who are deceiving others or uh, under pressure to bail out of gospel ministry or maybe to soften the message a little bit, Uh, Why should Timothy keep doing what he has been doing? Why should he continue in the things he's learned to become convinced of? Why should he follow Paul's example, not just in having observed him and having followed his example previously, but why should he continue to do that even after Paul is gone or as Paul is about to depart from this life and Paul is being persecuted and even will be killed on account of this? Why should he keep going? And it's a question that you would have to ask yourself, wouldn't you? Why should I keep doing this if this is just going to cost me comfort, ease, and maybe even my life? Why would I do this if this means that other people that I once worked with uh, have departed from me and the, uh, the working relationship is over because they have abandoned these things that maybe some people would see as not that significant? 
Why should I keep doing this at great cost to myself? And of course, there are many answers in this book, uh, not, uh, not least of which is the future reward that's promised for people who are faithful that Paul will get into in chapter 4. But the reason Paul lays out here is because of the very nature of the word of God itself. It is all we have. It is all we have. And the great thing about that is that it's all we need. We don't need other things to be able to do ministry effectively. We have the scriptures. And because the scriptures are what they are and are of such a nature as what they are, we have the ability to do what God wants us to do, all that he wants us to do, to be found faithful before him if we simply know and understand and minister the word of God to one another and to other people. So these features of the Word of God, we looked at a few last week. Um, First of all, the Word of God protects us from false and evil teaching. This is a little bit of an implied truth. Going back to verse 14, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. These men are a contrast to what Timothy is supposed to be doing. Timothy is supposed to continue in the things he's learned to become convinced of, which would include Paul's gospel message that he trained Timothy in, and it would include the sacred writings that he had known from childhood. So in contrast to this stands deceivers, stands people who are being deceived uh, and or deceiving other people. And again, then implied in that is that if you understand and know the word of God, it can protect you from those falsehoods. It can help you to recognize when people are being deceivers because it draws a line between what God says and what they're saying. So the word of God protects us from false and evil teaching. And there are, of course, a number of passages that talk about that. We looked at 1 Timothy 4 as maybe the most prominent where Timothy is told how watching his life and doctrine will rescue not only himself but also those people who hear him. So the word of God protects from false and evil teaching. Uh, The second truth about God's word that we looked at last week is that it can be learned by all. It can be learned by all. Verse 15 talks about how Timothy has known this from childhood. It was taught to him uh, mainly by two women, uh, which implies that this is something that is not just for adults, and it's not just something that is for males, and it's not just something for some segment of the population. He says in chapter 1, verse 5, the, uh, he has a sincere faith that first dwelt in his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, And then it says here in verse 15 of chapter 3 that he has known these sacred writings from childhood. All of which is to say that the scriptures are for everyone. They're for everyone. They're not for some kind of elite. And they're not for people who are not elite. They are for everyone. And they're understandable. This doesn't mean that it's going to be easy to understand these things. There are things that are sometimes difficult to understand. There are things that require work. As we saw in chapter 2 verse 15, you've got to labor diligently to cut the word of God straight, to get it right. But you can understand it, and we should be understanding it at every age that we find ourselves in every station of life. We should be receptive to it from the youngest age, and we should be teaching it to other people from the youngest age. We should be putting the word of God into our hearts and the hearts of other people, uh, no matter who they are. So these sacred writings, the Old Testament, which was a technical term here being used, and then by implication, as he's going to talk about, the New Testament as well, which was being written at the time that Paul was writing this, uh, literally. So it is understood or it can be learned by all. Uh, the third thing about God's word is that it gives the wisdom that leads to saving faith. So it gives the wisdom which leads to saving faith. It says in verse 15, they're able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, which is to say that all of the Bible is valuable, not just because it gives us moral instruction, not just because it protects us from evil, um, not just because it helps us to know God, but because it is preparatory, even all of the Old Testament, and especially the Old Testament, it is preparatory for understanding and responding properly in faith to Jesus Christ and his message of salvation. If you understand the Old Testament in truth, then Jesus Christ is visible to you when he comes as the one that fits what has been predicted. He's the one that fits the need of having your sins forgiven. He's the one who shows us what God is like. He is the one who fulfills these things. So when you find Jesus as someone who knows the Old Testament and understands it rightly, you are going to respond to him properly if you've understood the Old Testament properly. It prepares for salvation. 
and uh, it prepares for receiving Christ by faith. So the word of God uh, prepares for him as well. This is the third truth about it. And then uh, we began to look into this idea in verse 16 that the scriptures are inspired by God and completely perfect. The scriptures are inspired by God and completely perfect. So verse 16 says all scripture is inspired by God. And again, I'll just ask, does anyone have uh, an ESV? What does the ESV say there? Breathed out. Breathed out by God. Not breathed in by God, but breathed out by God. That's the, that's the idea. God has spoken these words and they've come out of his figurative mouth. And therefore, uh, therefore the scripture is the product of God speaking. He does so uh, by various means. We read in Hebrews chapter 1 that God spoke in verse 1 to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. What are some of the ways that he spoke in the Old Testament? How did he reveal himself? Can you tell me what a few of those were? Mm -hmm. Night visions, yeah. Maybe Daniel in particular was the one receiving those. Yeah, night visions. Mm Mm-hmm. Angels or messengers, yep. Prophets, yep. Walks in the garden, yeah. Garden of Eden, he's right there with Adam and Eve, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, what else? That's right, yeah, so it's not just quotes from God in that sense of him speaking to someone and that person hearing it and then going and doing it, but uh, he spoke through the events that he caused to come to pass in his providence and sometimes in what we would call his supernatural working where he uh, worked in contrast to the expected things that might happen or might be possible according to his established laws of nature. So yeah, when you read all of the, these narrative things in scripture, uh, many of them, and they might even seem just mundane in and of themselves, but these are ways that God spoke and taught us about himself. Yeah. Anything else? What's that? Oh, the, yeah, the Uman and Uman and Thummim. Yeah, yeah, there was, there was like basically like a coin flip kind of thing when you would go and you would talk to God uh, and there was an authoritative response of how God would respond. They had these tools and it's hard to know exactly what they looked like or how that functioned exactly. But in Israel, they were supposed to consult God in that way and actually get an answer from him. Um, now, there are few of those instances um, recorded in scripture but I believe there are at least a couple where they where they did and there was an answer that came back yes or no yeah 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 the word came he just said here's what this is and they they knew it somehow how did how exactly did they know it is it like emblazoned through on a screen in there they just have it in there there's there's really no way for us to replicate that feeling but it's the way it came yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he spoke these words and Moses heard him and recorded it. Yep. And then he recorded the vision of what he saw. So yeah, many times it was people recording what they saw about God when God was uh, making himself known in a vision in a particular way, like Isaiah 6 or Ezekiel 1. And you have God showing up in a certain way and we learn about God through this vision that's describing uh, an appearance of the likeness of God as Isaiah or as Ezekiel puts it. Yeah. Yeah, just... Yeah, out of a whirlwind to Job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See? Yeah, face to face as a friend would. And so Moses would come out and the glory was on his face, right? Uh, from meeting with God. Uh, yeah, anything else? Pretty interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and he spoke through various types of prophets too, some willing, some unwilling. Uh, so, you know, uh, you have the, the uh, kind of humorous account in uh, 1 Samuel where Saul is chasing after David and God uh, 
basically stalls Saul from being able to come after him by sending his spirit upon him so that he just stops in place and starts prophesying. <laughs> like he uses that to, to do that. Um, or you have, um, you have Balaam, the evil prophet for hire, who understood because God had warned him, you can't say anything bad about Israel. And so he couldn't take the bribe and actually do it. He told Balak uh, that he couldn't go curse Israel. And yet God allowed him with much warning and then the stopping the, him with the donkey and the angel of the Lord and all of that. And yet he still used Balaam to speak and to bless Israel. So it was sometimes even these prophets were evil people as Balaam was said to be. Uh, and Jude makes that extremely clear. Yeah, anything else? Yeah, so lots of different ways that God's word got on the page of scripture for us, but nonetheless, it got there. Um, I want to consider not just that process, which we looked at last week in First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter 1, uh, 20 to 21, where this, the Holy Spirit superintended the men who wrote so that everything that God wanted to be on the page got there exactly as God wanted it to, but uh, also the extent of inspiration. The process is... Uh, the process is that God carried men along to do this. He inspired it. What does it mean uh, that it says, or that I'm talking about the extent of inspiration? Well, it's here in verse 16. What's the first word of the verse? All. All scripture. All scripture. What does that mean? Well, there are people who at various points in church history have tried to argue that all doesn't quite mean all when it comes to scripture. And they will say things like, well, all scripture is inspired uh, by God, just generally speaking, or the thoughts of scripture are inspired, or the main points of scripture are inspired, or maybe scripture is inspired insofar as it refers to religious thoughts and thoughts concerning the faith, but not when it comes to matters of history and science and things like that. Well, that's not what this says. It says all scripture is inspired by God. And what this means, and the way that theologians have uh, often helpfully put this, is what we will call plenary verbal inspiration. Plenary verbal inspiration. We say, what does that word mean? Plenary? I don't use that word. Uh, if you've ever been to a conference, you'll know that there are a couple of different types of sessions. There are the breakout sessions, you know, or like seminars where you go and maybe you have 20 different things going on at once or 10 different things going on at once. So you have these specialized subjects that people want to go to or hear about. Um, that would be the breakout session or something like that. But uh, then you will have the sessions where everyone who's there is together. And they call this a plenary session. Because it is the full session. Everyone is there. The whole conference convenes for this. Plenary inspiration simply means that scripture is inspired throughout in all its parts, the whole thing. It doesn't just start somewhere um, around, you know, Exodus or Judges or, um, you know, maybe Isaiah or something like that. It is inspired completely in the whole thing. And the verbal part of inspiration means that scripture is inspired right down to the very word. Not just the thoughts in general, not just the concepts vaguely or broadly speaking, but every single word. So that scripture can say things like in Proverbs 30 verse 5, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Now, you could possibly argue that that passage is referring a little bit more generally to the idea of every message of God or uh, every phrase that God speaks, every statement that God makes, which I think would still imply the truth of every word mattering. But maybe you could make that argument because sometimes the word for word can also be used a little bit more broadly, and we use it the same way. Uh, that's a good word that you spoke there. Or what's the word? Or what's the, what's the word from this person? Well, he said this, and you can paraphrase, but that's not what's going on here because we find things even more specifically stated in places like Matthew 5.18. Matthew 5.18, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, that is a stroke of a letter, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law. In fact, it might even be saying it uh, not strongly enough to say that Scripture is inspired down to the words. Because Jesus even says, 
right down to the letters, the smallest letter, and even part of a letter, a stroke of a pen that distinguishes one letter from another. The Apostle Paul shows us that an entire argument can hinge on whether a passage is singular or plural. Because he says in Galatians 3.16, he does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. So scripture is very, very precise in how inspired it is. It is right down to every single thing, every single word, every single letter within those words. And uh, just to sort of exaggerate the point, Jesus says even the smallest stroke, um, which doesn't necessarily exaggerate it because it does make a distinction between the letters. But the point is, it, it is everything is there on purpose. Nothing can be changed without changing what God has said. So this is the extent of inspiration, plenary verbal inspiration or full verbal inspiration. The whole scripture right down to every single word. All of it is breathed out by God. And that is what ended up on the pages of scripture. Now, just to speak for a moment about the extent of that and what that covers, um, at the time of Paul's writing of 2 Timothy, how much of the Bible did he have? How much had been written? Can you tell me? Roughly speaking? Most of it. Yeah, most of it. You had the entire Old Testament. You had uh, all of Paul's letters except this one, it seems. And this one is in the process of being written. Probably the book of James. Um, the first three Gospels, apart from, uh, apart from uh, the Gospel of John, had most likely already been written by this point. And probably... Uh, the book of Acts as well. Maybe the book of Hebrews, although it was probably written right around this time. And maybe even one or both of Peter's letters. So most of the New Testament has been written by this point, but not yet all of it. And so what we find is that Paul is not necessarily referring to um, what we have here in terms of saying there are 66 inspired books of the Bible and all of those are inspired by God, but rather he is speaking to the nature of what Scripture is and then this truth applies insofar as Scripture is extant at that time. If a Scripture has come to be written at, the, uh, at whatever time you are reading this, then it is to that Scripture Whatever extent has now been revealed by God and, ins and inscribed on the page uh, that these things refer. So all scripture is inspired by God. For Paul, referred to the Old Testament and anything that had come to be scripture by the time of his writing. All scripture for us includes not only that, but also 2 Timothy and then the other books that would be written afterward that were inspired scripture. Coming through the apostles and prophets and containing the inerrant truth of the word of God. So then, uh, all of Scripture that we have on, in our Bibles today fits this category, even if Paul had not yet seen some of those books written and would not see them in his lifetime. Um, let me give you one more uh, important truth about this, and then we can uh, take any comments and questions before we move on. Um, the inspiration here is found in a particular place, uh, not where it came from, which is, of course, it comes from God. But where does Paul locate the, the sphere of inspiration? Where is this inspiration placed? Where is, uh, where, where actually, where, where is the, the location, so to speak? And if that doesn't make sense, just shout out an answer anyway, and I'll explain what I mean. Where does inspiration take place? What's that? Wherever God says it? Yep, that's true. That's true. Okay. What's that? Yeah, the original manuscript. So that's, a, that's another point as well, which is that the, the text itself, let me get to that in a minute actually because I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, so it is in the original manuscripts. Um, but what he, know, what he says here is not all biblical writers were inspired. Or all biblical authors were inspired. What he says here is that all scripture is inspired. 
meaning that he's referring to the actual product on the page. He is not referring to the fact that biblical authors were inspired, that they were prophetically carried along by the Spirit of God, though they were, and 2 Peter tells us that. But he also is saying that this goes further than that, meaning there wasn't some kind of failure between God putting it in their mind and their pen and ink touching the page. He's saying that they got it on the page the way that God wanted them to. The scripture is breathed out by God. So this is not talking about the authors getting very fired up or the authors being possessed in some way. Again, though God worked in various ways uh, to make sure that they were able to do what they wanted. And God did work through his spirit in all of them to make sure that they wrote down what he wanted. But it doesn't say the biblical authors were inspired. It says all scripture is inspired. And this is very important for us because he draws a distinction between flawed men and perfect writings. Flawed men and perfect writings. Everybody who wrote scripture was a sinful person. Everyone who wrote the scripture was someone who was imperfect. So that even someone like Peter, who at one point denied Christ and in another point acted contrary to the gospel, can write perfect scriptures. You say, how can sinful and imperfect men be the basis of the faith that we believe? How can this be possible? Well, it's not because of their flawlessness, but it's because of the superintending work of the Holy Spirit to make sure that what God wanted got onto the page. So this here protects us against any kind of charge that, well, maybe, uh, maybe there was a problem because these guys were from a particular culture. You know, maybe the scripture is distorted because it only comes from male perspectives. Or maybe, it only, maybe it's distorted because it comes from perspectives in a certain uh, historical time. Or it was written uh, exclusively or almost exclusively, perhaps, by Jews. Um, this doesn't leave the scriptures open to imperfection because all scripture is inspired by God. God made sure that what he wanted got down on the page. And so what we need to realize is though we might, well, let me back up. When we try to understand the scripture, we are trying to understand something. And it's not just when we come to this and say, well, and you guys know this, but you don't just come to this and say, what this means to me is X, Y, Z. There's a sense in which we really shouldn't care what it means to us because what something means to us is not necessarily the same thing as what the text means. What it means to us is just kind of what we look at and decide that we like from that or that we want to be true. Um, but we want to know what it means. And only when we understand what it actually means in and of itself can we then say, well, here's what this means for us. Here are the implications. Here are the ramifications. Here is the outcome of that. Here are the things that I need to apply in my life on the basis of that. But we can't do that until we understand what it means, period, in and of itself, timelessly speaking. So we want to find out what the text actually means. And to do that, what we have to do is to find what we call authorial intent. What was the intention of the author? What did the author intend at the time that he was writing, in writing to this original audience, what was he trying to say to them? And then in that, what were the timeless truths that are being conveyed that were written about in certain cultural expressions, but nonetheless have these timeless truths undergirding them? That is what the text means. So it meant something to them, which was not different than what it means, but we draw out the timeless principles from that and then they can apply in every setting. And we say, this is what this means for us now. Uh, so we want to find out what the authorial intent is. But here's to the point of what I'm talking about, the distinction between inspiration in the authors and inspiration in the text. We cannot find authorial intent apart from the author's words apart from what's actually on the page. We can't say, you know, what I think the author meant was not X. When the text says X, we can't say that. We can't say, I believe the author was trying to say something or he would have really meant this behind the scenes or he wrote this because if he had this hidden motive that was going on. We can't say that. The meaning is in the text, not in the hidden mind of the author. 
So it's one thing to say we want to find out what the author meant by what he said, but we are trying to find out what the author meant by what he actually put on the page, not just by what we would speculate that he was thinking. And unfortunately, too often, the way that it's done is people trying to find what the author really meant, which is in distinction from, um, or at least untethered to, what the author actually said in the words that are there. So we want to find out authorial intent, and we, ha- we can do so only by looking at the words of Scripture. Now, I want to just uh, mention one more thing here that, uh, as Aaron pointed out, the inspiration of the text is found in the original manuscripts of this, and this is not the class where we're going to go into how God preserved and uh, all of the ways where God uh, passed down the truth through various uh, preservation of copies and copies and copies of the text, but simply to say that uh, the Word of God was inspired in the original manuscripts. There have been many, many, many copies made of the Scripture throughout history. There are more early manuscripts of biblical texts as far as ancient manuscripts go than any other ancient document. And to say it's not even close really just doesn't even begin to do justice to it. We're talking about thousands and thousands as opposed to maybe dozens of a few. Uh, These are the, the evidence that we have for the accuracy of what was originally written in those manuscripts is at a level that no other ancient document even begins to compare. So there are definitely places where we have manuscripts through various, um, through various copyist errors where we can see that there are differences in some of the copies that have come down. But there are entire, uh, there are entire uh, programs of study and uh, entire fields of study that have looked into all the reasons why this might have been the case. And we can sort out with a great deal of accuracy Uh, where those things are, we can find out pretty confidently in most cases what was the actual original thing based upon a number of factors, including uh, early dates and uh, other things like that, and natural copy errors, understanding how certain errors would have taken place that make sense that we would understand if it happened today. Um, And at the end of the day, very, very few of those remain unresolved, and the ones that do to my knowledge, have not much significant effect upon any doctrinal points one way or another. Um, So what we have in Scripture is, in essence, what was written then. Um, We have the text of Scripture on our pages so that when we look at our faithful English translations, we can say with confidence that our Bibles are inspired by God down to the Word from Genesis 1-1 all the way through the end of the book of Revelation. And so we have the inspired scripture that Paul referred to uh, in this text. So that's a lot to throw at you, I know. Uh, any questions about that before we, uh, before we move on? Take a few minutes just to, to talk about this or what's on your mind about that. Questions, comments on anything? Yeah, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. There's a, there's a pretty compelling case to be made there in 1 Timothy 5 that he is quoting from Luke, right? Quoting Jesus as recorded in, uh, in Luke. Yeah, uh, and to your point, there, um, there are people that draw a line of distinction that isn't there between Jesus and Paul. I like Jesus, but I, but I don't like Paul. Well, I'm not really sure you understood Jesus correctly if you think that that's the case. And the other apostles most certainly would not think that there's any distinction between the two of them. Um, Jesus, you know, Paul came up and said, hey, here's a gospel that I'm preaching. And they said, well, that's what we're preaching too. And we got that from Jesus. You can read Galatians 2 talks about that, right? Uh, So there's a lot of 
But people say that because they find, generally speaking, it's not because they have exhaustively studied the entire uh, words of Jesus and the life of Jesus and everything about him, even in the Gospels. So it's, uh, it's an error of just, just even understanding the fullness of what he has said and how that does align so cleanly with what Paul said. But it's also a failure to understand the nature of inspiration. It's, uh, it's kind of the red letter Christianity, if you will, right? Uh, it is what Jesus said is really what matters. And there tends to be in that a certain moral leaning. You can kind of pick and choose the certain uh, the, uh, the, the broad general morality that you think Jesus espouses in such places as the Sermon on the Mount. And you don't have to deal with some of the things that, uh, that come up in other places. And really what you get then is setting certain words of Jesus above any other scripture, which um, even though he is the God-man and he is the Son of God and he does have a lot to say and these things are very important, uh, they're not elevated above other scripture. And we shouldn't make the mistake of doing that. Yeah, so good points. Yes, yeah, Stephen. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So how does the Old Testament, how does it apply to people who are not in Old Testament times and places? Uh, so, and I think the question is, is demanded of us by this verse, isn't it? Because it says all scripture is profitable for these things, for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And he is, he is talking about the fact that it's, it's beneficial for us. So in what way? And teaching and reproof, correction, all of this implies that there's some degree of moral element that is binding upon Christians even after Jesus has come. So it's, a, it's not just a fair question, it's a necessary question. Um, so there is a, I mean, yeah, it is something of a big issue, but um, let me see if I can summarize this in a way that's helpful. And then I'll give you a book recommendation, which I've recommended to a couple of other people, uh, and maybe they could, they could tell you their experience as well, because it's somewhat technical, but I think it's helpful. Uh, so the idea is, Okay, I'll just give you the book. So the book that I found helpful on this is called Paul and the Law. It's by a guy named Brian Rosner. Um, as with anything, I don't, I'm not uh, blanket commending every single word of every single book that I've read. But I think that the paradigm is pretty helpful, which is he talks about how the law in Christ is uh, set aside as law covenant. So it's set aside as a covenant. So there is a certain group of people uh, to whom the old covenant law was given. That began in Exodus chapter 20 when God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel. And he entered into a covenant specifically with a group of people that he had brought out of Egypt on the basis of the fact that he had done that with them. And the law was given, not broadly speaking, to everyone in the world, although they had a lot to learn from that and they were supposed to learn from watching Israel, but it was given to the nation of Israel. And there were a lot of things that were contingent upon it being within one national setting for it to be able to be followed. And so it really wasn't even possible for the other countries to do the law in the sense that it was given. Um, sometimes people will split up the law into moral, civil, and ceremonial categories. Like we keep the moral stuff around, but then the civil law, well, you know, that was kind of for Israel. But then maybe some people would say that we should have those kind of things in every country because those are just laws. And that's, again, that's a sub-argument about that. And then the ceremonial, they would write as like, you know, priestly things and offerings and stuff like that. Uh, I don't actually see a distinction in the law among those things in a hard and fast way. And I think a lot of times they overlap and it's really hard to actually draw a line there. A friend of mine in seminary said, um, why don't you take a highlighter and take three colors and try to highlight each one? And I think you'll end up with a lot of brown and black and other stuff like that because there's going to be many that fit two or three categories. So I don't think you can divide it up into moral, civil, and ceremonial. To me, the law is a unit. It's just a unit. It is a covenant God entered into with Israel. Uh, and it's not, that's not even the entirety of the Old Testament. There's, there are several important things before the law came into place in the Old Testament, including the Abrahamic covenant. 
And Paul makes a point in Galatians 3 that a covenant that came 400, or a law that came 400 years later can't undo the promises that were already made. So the law came in to administer the Abrahamic covenant for a time and a place for a certain particular nation, which is the nation of Israel. And Israel was under that covenant until such time as Christ came. And that's why it's called the old covenant because it has been uh, replaced by the new it has been set, up, uh, set aside then as a covenant requirement, an obligation that Israel had to keep before God, meaning that it's not set aside in its entirety, meaning it has no value. It's just it's not, you don't relate to God by means of that as a binding oath or a binding covenant any longer where you're obligated to keep those things. Um, so that's the first thing that he points out in that book. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on the second. I think that it has to do with, uh, with um, uh, being fulfilled in Christ. Um, no, 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 it's not. I'm sorry. It's replaced by the law of Christ. So it's replaced by the law of Christ, which is when you read the New Testament, very similar to the Old, uh, to the old Covenant, which is uh, it has many of the same commandments at its heart. So you read Romans 13, um, he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Uh, it talks about doing the requirement of the law. Romans 8 enables us by the Spirit, uh, the Spirit enables us to do, to fulfill the requirement of the law, which is kind of the essence or the heart of the law. And Paul goes through in um, Romans 13, again, and lists out a number of interpersonal commands that if you are walking by the Spirit, if, you are, if you're loving your neighbor, you're going to, in the process of that, fulfill the commandments of the law. So he even sees moral dimensions of that that are applicable in every case. It's just not that there's a remnant of the moral law which still remains binding as part of the Mosaic law per se. Um, so that would be the next thing, the law of Christ. Uh, we're talking about that. We, we read about that in Galatians 6, 2. Love, uh, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You read about it in James 2, the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I think that that particular idea of the law of Christ, which very much overlaps a lot with the old covenant law, but nonetheless is its own new thing, uh, that then is binding upon Christians. And then the third uh, point that he makes in the book is that the law is reappropriated in two main ways. One is for wisdom, the other is prophecy. So uh, there are a lot of things from the Old Testament, from the law itself, uh, that give us wisdom about how to live. And we can say, you know, like in, Rome, in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, um, Paul points back and he says, uh, you know, doesn't the law talk about this? Like, God's not worried about oxen, is he? He's, he's worried about people. And so he gave this commandment about oxen just to make a gener more general point about um, not burdening. The, what, I forget exactly how he puts it, but you can read there, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12 or so. Uh, and then he uh, appropriates, or the law is appropriated for Christians as prophecy. There's a lot in there that talks about what God says about things in the future and, and uh, speaks about Jesus in general. Um, now, obviously, there are more uses of the law as well, like to show us the holiness of God and to bring, it, you know, bring us to Christ. Galatians 3 talks about how it stewarded the nation of Israel to bring us to Christ. I think there are a lot of implications there for us as well uh, as far as the knowing the scriptures from childhood can bring us, can help make us wise to salvation even as Christians. But I think that the, the case for that, and I know this is maybe more detailed than you were asking about, but, um, but I think it's helpful because it, it, it just it kind of reframes it and says it, it's not that, well, it's either binding uh, it's binding for everybody until it's specifically said otherwise, or it's not binding on anyone unless specific passages say so. I don't think that that's what it is. I think that the whole law is applicable to us in the sense that we can learn from it and we can see what God is like and we can understand what a lot of God, what his uh, moral expectations are of us and so on without necessarily having to say this commandment that was given in Leviticus 12 is what we must do today. Uh, we can learn the principles from that. We can learn what God is like from that as Christians. And, and it does bind us to act in certain ways as believers because we understand what God's character is and we understand how that played out in certain other places. And when we know what God told them to do in those situations, um, then we can, we can act with, with wisdom today. I mean, uh, some examples of this might be like, uh, you know, there, there's an instruction in... Uh, in Exodus about if you have an animal that gores somebody, you know, what happens? I think it's in Exodus. What, what happens if the animal gores somebody? Well, what's that? If the person, oh yeah, it depends where the person dies. And, and then it says, it depends whether it was in the habit of goring, you know, like if you knew it was an animal that did this. Well, what if you don't have any goring animals, but you have dogs or you have you know, snakes as a pet or something like uh, is, there, is there wisdom in there saying, you know, maybe I, should, maybe I should consider whether this animal is like 
the kind of person or kind of animal that would do something to people. Uh, it doesn't have to say every single, you know, modern animal for us to do that. But what's the point behind all of that? The point is, how do I love my neighbor by looking out for him, even by the stewardship of my own property and knowing what's dangerous and what's not? And that may seem like common sense, but that's something that the New Testament doesn't repeat. But is that binding upon us to think about other people in that way? Yeah, it is. God wants us to think according to the spirit of those texts. So this is why I would say that when he says here, all scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, it's not that we go to Exodus 19 to 24 and say, well, here is all that was given at Mount Sinai, or we just go to only the Ten Commandments, or we go to uh, Deuteronomy and say, all that God told Israel, we do those things one-to-one. I don't think it's like that, Uh, but everything does apply. It's just that we kind of have to zoom out, say, what was the principle behind this? What was the heart of this commandment that God was giving? We're not trying to avoid things by doing that. We're just trying to say, what is the timeless principle and what is God's character and what is God's moral standard that is being played out in this cultural setting at this time for this people in this nation? And then how does that same principle apply to us today? So scripture is very applicable for that. And um, and I think that when we understand that, then it opens up an entire world to us of, wow, Scripture, the Old Testament is actually huge for us. And we can never know enough about it. And we can never think deeply enough about it because there's so much there. And there are so many situations in life that unless we understand the Old Testament in detail, we're going to miss that connection of what, how this would play out in our day-to-day life uh, in a way that maybe wasn't explicitly stated. But we'll see it if we're, if we're studying that out. So Andrew and then Robert. Yeah, I, well, I, maybe. Like, is it more concerned with pleasing God? I think the way that Christians carry out the law of Christ is more concerned with pleasing God than the way people would wrongly carry out the old covenant. So they would just do things on the surface and miss it. Uh, but the, the thing about the law of Christ, doing that um, by means of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, is that we're actually able to do it from the heart. So the Spirit of God enables us to do what, apart from the Spirit, we could not do. And that's, I mean, that, that's what Paul says in Romans 7 and 8. He says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Okay, so the law couldn't do it because even someone who kind of hypothetically wanted to, there's no, there's no Holy Spirit. So how can you do what God says? Because we're of the flesh, but the law is spiritual. So how are we going to make that connection? So I think that's the argument Paul's making actually in Romans 7 and 8 is, look, apart from the Spirit of God... The law, like it's the law is good. It's not the law is not the problem. It's that we it doesn't provide its own mechanism to carry itself out. But the new covenant does because we have the Holy Spirit who enables us to to fulfill um, not the law per se, but the heart of the law. Because not all Christians are under the law. So in fact, none are under the law. Actually, Paul himself says that even as a former Jew in First Corinthians nine. So, yeah, does that answer your question? Okay, yeah, Robert, were you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah it, it, it does. The law has that function of showing us our own sinfulness. Um, and, and it does so. It's interesting you read that. It's not just by setting up a standard and saying how hard it is. It, it actually, um, it, it's almost like through giving the opportunity to disobey. It's like, oh, there's a commandment. You know, you guys, we've all been kids and we have, you know, many of us have kids. You, you know what it's like when you put something in front of them and there's something that they want and you're like, don't do that. You're, oh, I didn't notice that opportunity to defy you before. So thank you for pointing that out to me. This is what the law did for Paul. It said, don't covet. And he was like, oh, okay. Uh, and it says the law, it produced in me coveting of every kind, Romans 7, 8. So the law kind of, uh, it just, it exposes those desires. It doesn't just tell us factually what's wrong and right. But when we have those commandments from God, it just shows how evil our own inner man is. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, I, I think the, the only caveat I would give to that is not to the sharper than two-edged sword, but to using the law is just caution when it comes to... I, so, uh, again, another. this is getting into another kind of area, but because I would argue that the law per se was only commanded in totality of Israel, I think you have to be careful that, um, that we don't hold as... Uh, that we don't over specifically hold as binding upon every single person who's ever lived things that were reserved for Israel. And I think I would specifically point to the Sabbath as something which was given as a sign to Israel. They were supposed to literally rest. They were supposed to not do work on on, uh, the seventh day, on Saturday. And for them to not observe that was sin. For a Gentile, a non-Jew, to not observe the Sabbath was like, whatever, we're Gentiles. Um, So... I wouldn't get onto someone for not doing that. But every other instruction, even the Ten Commandments, is just reiterated throughout Scripture as something which is things that people should do universally. Um, and that just demonstrates for us that largely that is reflective of God's moral character in and of itself, his expectations for mankind overall, not just for one particular nation. And you can see that by the things that, that Paul um, and others condemn the Gentiles for, you can kind of extrapolate backwards and say, okay, there's, these are the sins they committed. Um, based upon that, we can see what they were supposed to have done. And you get a really extensive list of the kinds of things that you can show people, according to God's word, that they have done wrong. Um, not to mention not worshiping him and giving thanks, which is foundational to all of that in Romans 1. So... Uh, where were we on that? Yeah. So the, the law is valuable for, for that. Um, part three. I think we're going to probably need to uh, because there are a lot of results of inspiration I want to talk about in terms of uh, its inerrancy and so on. Uh, it may be that we have to come back to this by sort of the, our teaching uh, arrangement and schedule, but at some point <laughs> we will jump back to this. So you may hear chapter four before you hear uh, the rest of chapter 3. But uh, I, I do want to cover the rest of this because it, it speaks about in 2 Timothy 3 um, the value of Scripture and then uh, not only the value of it, but, but also what it's useful for, what it's useful for. So anyway, if you, uh, if you have any questions about any of the other, these things this morning, then uh, please feel free to talk to me and I'd be glad to, uh, glad to talk in more detail and help you out however I can. But uh, for now, we should pray and, and wrap up for this morning. God, thank you for this time today, and uh, thank you for your kindness to us in giving us your word. Thank you for the clarity that it provides for us. As Psalm 19 says, it enlightens the eyes. And you just help us to see things and understand them clearly because we understand the way that you see things. You help us to have insight that even the sharpest of those according to human wisdom don't have, not because we are smarter than them, but because you show us things that are true that can't be known apart from divine revelation. And we thank you that you have overcome our sinfulness and our sinful hearts and forgiven our sins in Christ in such a way that we can now pursue you with sincerity and truth. And we pray that you'd help us this week to value your word in such a way as that we would do that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.